How often do we wade into the word and thrash around, weighed down by indecision? In desperate search of the Father's will for us. And yet, his will is less than mystery. He has made us a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation for this one purpose. To proclaim his might, his glory, his worthy work in placing each living stone of us precisely where we need to be to best reflect the light of the Lord. Scripture passage this morning comes from Peter's first letter to the churches in exile. Chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. 1 Peter 2, verse 1. Therefore rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation, now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans but chosen by God, and precious to him. You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. But you are a chosen people, a holy priesthood, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, so that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you have not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I uh, reached back into uh, the history books of the 1970s and plucked a word out for this morning to describe what I think is the essence of what God is doing when God is at work building Christian community. And that word is ecology. It's a word we don't use much anymore. We, we don't talk about ecology much. We talk about environment and we talk about uh, uh, climate change, and we talk about systems, and we, but back when I was a kid, and there was a time when I was a kid, back in that time in the 70s in school, we talked about ecology. We even had a cool symbol for it, which I couldn't even find in Google illustrations, so uh, I didn't put it in. Um, 
but it was once a thing. Community is an ecology. It is a system. It is a gathering together of disparate parts and unique pieces that together fit in such a way as to create a, a bigger whole, a more complete whole. We talk about core values in the Brethren in Christ Church, and this summer we've been doing a, a series on God's mission and the core values of the Brethren in Christ Church. And thanks be to God, we're halfway through. Um, you only have to endure five more weeks of this after today. But uh, uh, this is sort of the trajectory we're on. The first five core values of the Brethren in Christ Church talk about the ways in which God is redeeming the world. The foundations of redemption, God's character of love and grace. The narrative of our redemption, God's story, God's word to us in Scripture. And then the ways that redemption gets expressed in our lives through, through worship as we gather together to remember God's love and grace. Through discipleship as we follow God's call to us through Christ. And then today in community as we live in the ecosystem of God's love and grace. Beginning next week, we'll shift gears a bit and begin to talk about what our mission is. Because God's mission in the world is to redeem what was broken. We broke it. God is fixing it. That's the good news. Our mission, however, is not one of redemption. Uh, God takes care of redemption. It's not up to us to save the world. It's up to us to welcome the world that God is saving. There's a huge difference in that. God has not put us on earth to be in charge of the redemption of humanity. He's got that covered. God is God. We are not. Our mission is to welcome what God is doing. To welcome His redemptive activities. And we do that in acts of outward hospitality evangelism. And yes, I will try to square that circle next week of how evangelism is actually hospitality. Some of you are going to be skeptical, I know, but we'll work on it. Compassion and peacemaking. And then how we align our hearts. Uh, the, uh, the inward alignment of simplicity and how we declutter for the sake of hospitality and spirituality and how we how we live a life of intimacy with God through welcoming the world that God's redeeming. That's the trajectory we're on. That's the, those are the core values of our, of our tribe, the brethren in Christ, as we read, that, read those core values through the lens of God's mission in the world and our mission that grows out of God's work. The brethren in Christ say this about... Christian community, about belonging to the community of faith. They say, we value integrity in relationships and mutual accountability in an atmosphere of grace, love, and acceptance. And all of that, to me, begs the question, what do we mean by community? Now, probably more than anybody else in the congregation, I get loose with my definitions about community. I throw that word around like, you know, it's little bite-sized Snickers bars, you know. I just toss it and, and see who enjoys it. But in reality, community, I think for our purposes, can be identified in two big rocks. There is the, 
the Greek concept in the New Testament of koinonia. And koinonia, which came to be uh, uh, aligned with the church. The church's job is to practice fellowship, koinonia. But koinonia is more than just good coffee on Sunday morning. As important as good coffee on Sunday morning is, and it is important, koinonia is more than that. It is the, it is the, the citizenship of shared responsibility. It's, koinonia happens when we together take responsibility for what God is doing in our lives. When we give and receive counsel. When we have mutual accountability in relationships. We practice koinonia. We have begun to take shared responsibility for what God is doing in our midst. There's another kind of community. I would simply use the overarching rubric of neighborhood, the citizenship of shared geography. When you, when you live in proximity to somebody, you take on some, some responsibility for them. That's the, that's the great myth of American society is that I can live a full and complete and normal life and not know who lives on either side of me. That's right? just craziness. Nowhere else in the world does that happen but here in America where, where we uh, have designed homes that you can drive into and button up and walk inside without ever engaging anybody else on your street. Shame on us. It's a sin. Uh, we need instead to understand that God calls us to a citizenship of shared geography. That, that the fact that the person next door to me may not have behaviors that I like, nevertheless, lives next door to me. God's putting there for a purpose. Maybe just to irritate me. I don't know. But... Nevertheless, God is at work in the life of my neighbor. And if I'm really going to welcome the world that God is redeeming, if I'm serious about that, then I'm also serious about neighborhood. But neighborhood and koinonia are, are different realities. They're different, they're different views in the kaleidoscope of community. In koinonia, we give and receive Mutual counsel. We say to each other, speak into my life. Tell me how I'm doing. Tell me what I'm doing wrong. Tell me what I'm doing right. And I will do the same for you. In neighborhood, we say, we are responsible for this piece of creation. Let us take care of it together well. And those can overlap and commingle but they are two different realities. And so when we talk about the community of faith, and when the brethren in Christ talk about that as a core value, they tend to mean more koinonia. But I think it also applies to the idea of neighborhood. We value integrity. Integrity that's expressed in relationships and mutual accountability and done in an ecology, in an atmosphere of grace, love, and acceptance. So what does 1 Peter 2, 1-10 have to say with any of this? Well, as, as Matt taught us last week, whenever the scripture passage begins with, therefore, you got to look back. 
So in, 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 be patient with me and endure a quick review of 1 Peter chapter 1. In 1 Peter 1, a couple of things are happening. First of all, Peter begins his letter with a word of praise. Praise that, that as it unfolds, leads to hope. Peter, Peter isn't just thanking God because oh, God's really cool and, it's, and, and he's awesome and, and, and it's so neat to, to, to be Jesus' boyfriend. And it, it's, it's something more than that. It's God, in God's activity in the world, I can have hope. I can live as if the world as it is is not the final resolution. There is more yet to be revealed. That's hope. And Peter says it's in praise that we move towards hope. And then in the second half of chapter 1, he, uh, he engages in a midrash, in a commentary on the link between holiness as he quotes from those well-known verses in Leviticus 11 and 19, and the more well-known passage from Isaiah 40 about comfort and hope. And Isaiah says, and, and Peter says there's a link between holiness, between living life as if God mattered, and hope that comforts. Peter is willing to make the audacious point that the only hope that brings us comfort is hope that's lived out in the knowledge and assurance that God is worth dealing with. That living as if God mattered is important. And so Peter's message in chapter 1 taken together and distilled is that, that the work and words of Jesus compel us to a life of holiness, living as if what God said mattered, and hopefulness, that the world as it is is not the world as it is going to be forever. Change is a coming if we are willing to live as if God mattered. Peter comes to chapter 2 and he says, because of that reality, therefore, live in an ecology of integrity and community. In verses 1 through 3 of chapter 2, Peter pictures that as the life of an infant. Now, we've had our fourth grandson now, who is around enough to where we see Jackson sort of developing on an ongoing basis, but as he reaches into his ninth month among us, one thing I have figured out is that Jackson is pretty single-minded about his world. When he is hungry, he darn well wants to be fed right then. When he is sleepy, he wants to go to sleep then. Uh, when he wants to play, he wants to play. He doesn't want to hear your excuses about you're on deadline with your sermon, Grandpa. He wants to play now. He is single-minded. Jackson has a kind of integrity, a single-minded focus, a sense of where he wants to go, and by golly, he's going to go there. And if you want to enjoy life, you better come along for the ride with him. 
because if you don't, he has a high-pitched scream that will make you wish you had. Peter says, live like newborn babes who have tasted the spiritual milk of the good news. Be single-minded to the work of God within you. God is at work in you. Focus on that. Pay attention to that. Stay on the journey with that. In verses 4-8, through eight, Peter begins a commentary, a midrash, on Isaiah 28, Psalm 118, and Isaiah 8. These are, these are passages that <coughs> no Western seminary professor would put together and write a paper about and get away with it. Uh, they're just such different texts with different meanings. Uh, Isaiah 28, some of the oldest written uh, Hebrew that we have in the Old Testament. And it reveals to us a story about Israel's lack of faith. Psalm 118 is a coronation psalm. It's a psalm that was sung in the temple when a new king was crowned. And Isaiah 8 comes right after Isaiah 7, which tells the story of a political turmoil and the and the great words that we trot out at Christmas. Uh, a young woman will conceive and bear a son, and you will call him Emmanuel. What he does is he takes all of these images, a nation at risk, the call to a king, God's mysterious ways that make no sense to us, and Peter wraps them together in these verses and says, you're called to be like a house that has been well built. A house is a load-bearing structure. Am I right so far? Okay. I always want to check with the construction guys in the congregation to make sure I got it right. A house is a load-bearing structure, and all of the elements have to bear their load. They're different elements. They don't all act the same. Wires do not function in the same way that drywall does. At least if it's done right. If I do it, God only knows what's going to happen. But, but when intelligent, competent people build a house, all of the elements of the house have to come together to bear their share of the load. And that's what Peter's saying here. Become a load-bearing structure where all the elements are mutually accountable to each other. If the wires in a house don't do their job, there's no electricity. If the air conditioning compressor doesn't do its job in the house, you have this morning. And thanks be to God, we start work tomorrow on the new air conditioning system. Yay. But all the elements have to be mutually accountable to each other and in relationship to each other. You can't have you can't have wires for a skyscraper in a little house. Carry the load inappropriately, incorrectly, and you'll end up with a mess. As I found out one day, thanks to Michael, you can't put, and, 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 and Melvin, you can't put a 12-inch uh, toilet where a 10-inch one goes. Did I get the numbers right that time? I, okay, Melvin. Melvin's going, oh, please, hurry up and move on with your illustrations. <laughs> the house has to be, it has to have integrity. 
all of the systems have to come together in mutual accountability, in relationship to each other. And Peter's saying, you, your single-mindedness helps you become mutually accountable to all the other systems in the house so that you can live out your purpose, verses 9 and 10, your purpose of entering into a new vocation and a new identity. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people, Peter declares. Once you didn't have an identity, but through God's mercy you've been given an identity. You've been made into a new person, a, a, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Peter's outlining the creation of an ecology in chapter 2. That Christian community isn't just, well, I come to church and I get out of it what I want so that I'm fed and I'm taken care of. And if everybody else is too, then it's good. And if not, well, you know, maybe we need a new pastor or a new church. Which, of course, is the way we often do things in America. We're so committed to our individualistic needs that we miss the point that we are mutually accountable to each other. That we need each other. It's not that Nick, need, that, that Nick because he's a person of privilege, should get to go to Ghana because he can raise the money for it. It's because we need him to go. We need Nick to discover those things and come back and teach us about what it means to live with the kind of privileges we live with in the world as Americans. And, and instead of feeling guilt about that, do something about it. Lobby our, our representatives and our decision makers to be more attuned to the world, more mutually accountable to one another. That's what it means to create an ecology of community. That we are in this together. And sometimes we don't like each other when we're in this together. Sometimes we don't like each other when we know we're in it together. That's not the point. The point is, God has united us. God has joined us together. God has made us one body. How then will we live that out? And so Peter says to us that community is an organized ecology. And that ecology requires integrity. It requires wholeness. And that we've heard the whole truth. That, that God has revealed to us everything we need to know about how to walk with God in Scripture. God loves us utterly in a way that is no longer dependent on our behavior. That can't be dependent on our behavior. In God's actions of grace and love, and as we read in the biblical text, we are, we are made in the image of God with His love, and that our behavior really is secondary to that. We can't earn God's love. We can't curry God's favor. We can't uh, say to God, hey, I did a solid one for you, God. Now it's your turn to do one for me. That's not the deal. The deal is God loves us utterly and completely just the way we are. That that's not part of the equation 
in community. That the equation is because of God's love, we will offer that same kind of love to one another, regardless of whether they're worthy of our love or not, regardless of whether we agree with them on every jot and tittle of theology or not. Christian community requires integrity, but that integrity is not agreement on a punch list of ideas. That agreement, that integrity, is about knowing that God has put us together and then trying to figure out what do we do about that? How then do we live? And we express that reality as we worship together in our discipleship and in the new vocation, the new job that we've been given of community, of creating a place of hospitality to welcome the world that God is redeeming. And we do it through an ecology of koinonia, where relationships matter more than propositions, where we build together with mutual accountability, and where we breathe grace and love and acceptance. I have a confession to make. I, uh, I love spaghetti bolognese. And I figured out over the years there are two ways to make spaghetti. One way is to go to Stater Brothers and buy a can and open it. And if you're in a hurry, don't even bother heating it up. Just get a spoon and go. Uh, or you can dump its contents into a microwavable bowl and set the microwave until it blows up in your microwave and then you have to clean it out. <laughs> Done both of those. Or you can take ingredients, olive oil, fragile ingredients like eggs, garlic, and onions, and heirloom tomatoes, and durum wheat, and all kinds of herbs. And you can combine these ingredients in an, in, an, in an order and in a certain way that creates an amazing sauce and an amazing pasta that you're proud to serve to yourself and to others. Nobody wants to be invited over to dinner where you're opening a can of Stater Brothers spaghetti and meatballs. <laughs> Unless you're really, really hungry, or you're, you know, in your second year of college. Uh, <laughs> this, this probably happens some, I'm sure. Listen, when, when it does, call Lindsay, okay? What we want to sit together around and enjoy is a meal that's been prepared with all these ingredients. In the church in America, we have bought into a notion that we can create community out of a can. That we can prefabricate all the ingredients and stuff it into a vacuum-sealed can and set it on the shelf until we need it, and then we can open it and get a spoon and eat. Real community, real Christian community, is the painstaking growing and combining of ingredients until you get something beautiful to serve to one another and to enjoy together. 
And so this morning, some questions for us. What, uh, what ingredients do you need in your life to form the complex flavors of koinonia? What do you need? What ingredients do you need to form a dinner of koinonia? Do you, do you just need a can and a can opener and a spoon? Or do you need to cultivate a way of life with lots of ingredients that come together? What role does relationships of integrity and mutual accountability play in your participation in neighborhood life? How do we, how do we, we can easily think as Christians, oh yeah, this is, this is what the church should be, not this. But how does that play out with our neighbors? Mostly what we want to give our neighbors is a can of Stater Brothers spaghetti. And maybe what they need are all the ingredients that we are putting together in our lives. And how does the ecology of community support your calling to be in the vocation of God's people? Which is a better meal to sit down to? A can of spaghetti? Or an amazing dinner put together with all these fresh ingredients? One more thing, it was Jim Leach um, with Wonder, Wonderland Hill Development Company who said that community is the secret ingredient of sustainability. I almost wrote that down as community is the secret sauce of sustainability. <laughs> but in a world that is di literally dying for sustainability, in a world that can no longer deal with us drawing all of the natural resources out of it, all of the non-renewable resources, and abusing the planet and destroying it, what's, gonna, what's going to change that is when we begin to realize that sustainability isn't sustainable by myself. Sustainability requires community. Sustainability requires an ecology of God at work in our lives. That's why every so often we come together around this table, and sometimes we put you know other things on here, but we also put a loaf of bread and a bit of grape juice. And in doing so, we, we share together in an ancient tradition been around as long as even before the church where we take bread and cup and we remember Jesus and Matt's going to lead us as we uh, share together in the celebration of the Eucharist. <laughs>